This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. All right, let's crank this thing up. Uh, now let's crank it down. <laughs> crank it up. Crank it down. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the afternoon here on 3 Triple RFM. Uh, this is your food time calling. Yes. The food is calling. It's a pretty good afternoon out there too. I think the uh, the sun's going to burn through the clouds and we were predicting blue skies for the afternoon is your Triple R forecast. That was very poetic. The well, sun will burn through the clouds. Burn on. If it hasn't already, we don't. We can't see the clouds from our little container. And shadows shall form. And there's a bit of bite in that sun because yes. um, the earth seems to be tilting as it does at this time of year. Yes. There you go, the scientists out the door. Thank you, scientists, for show. your eruditions as always. Yes. Jeez, they're good. Yes. And you know what I really love? Uh, Dr. Well, Shane, interpretive dance at the end. He always does that little <laughs> finger with his hand. Like, as, as we do the studio swap, no one gets to see that. Could you radio. describe it? Well, he, just, Matt? He, he indicates the volume level of the mm. thing he's playing on air with his hand and sort of brings oh, it down and waves, gesticulates. It's a thing of great beauty. Isn't it? thing. As today's show is a thing of, um, of great beauty, of uh, incredible ability, I suppose would be one way that we put it. Yes. Um, boy, if we got a, a superstar of food in here this afternoon, I'm mm-hmm. a little bit excited about it. Matt, you excited? I'm very excited. Good. I can mm. see by the the way you are a quiver. <laughs> Matt is a quiver today. Yes, we I'm will. Prone. I'm set. Let's cut to the the chase. Um, one of the things um, I love about this person, actually, who he works for, um, mm. Heston Blumenthal. Mm-hmm. Heston Blumenthal is one of the most important chefs, I think, in the world today. Yes, I would agree. And for if you want to distill it down. Or at least the way that I distill it down is here is someone who has great scientific knowledge underpinning, underpinning even all the endeavors that he does and yet using mm. the science for good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to evoke the seven year old child in us all. This is true. Probably one of the defining shifts of the current generation. Hugely influential. It's always good to measure mm. someone's, um, their ability by their influence. I do that for musicians too. Mm. How influential are they? And in Heston's case, extraordinarily influential. And we have... We have. Thank you, Matt. Sitting uh, in the green room, not Heston himself. Are they sitting in the green room? No, they're, no, not. they're in, in the kitchen. kitchen. They're in the kitchen. They go, I hope they can hear us. Hello if you're in there. Uh, Ashley Palmer Watts, and he is the executive chef of Dinner by Heston in uh, the South Bank area. Yes. Of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> of the era. But not just that, he divides, he straddles, straddles the, the world. Oh, straddles the world. Because, of course, there's a dinner by Heston also in London. He's the executive chef of both of those restaurants. So we have to say that he's, um, he's one of um, Heston's right-hand uh, people, yes. shall we, we say, um, has been in association with Heston since 1999. Wow, so he's seen, he's seen the whole journey. He's stuck in there, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're going to have a chat to him. So, mm. and, and you know what? Mm-hmm. Um, this is good for Matt and I. Might suck for you guys, but he's bringing gin. <laughs> <laughs> it's the price of admission. Yeah, well, you know. Let's bring in some gin. Yeah, okay, you can come in. So, um, that's one thing. So, we're, we're looking at the very, very top of the culinary tree. Yes. And before that, what we want to do is to have a look at um, a cycle 
um, mm-hmm. a cycle of disease. And what we're talking about is um, in Africa, well, we, around the world. Mm-hmm. And actually, we've seen with Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. uh, with the calamity that has befallen the the people of there, what is known as a cycle of sickness. Mm-hmm. And, and this is about drinking contaminated water. And yes. contaminated waterborne pathogens, waterborne viruses, Bad water. Not good. Not good. Thank mm. you, Matt. That's a good way of putting it. And um, we've got a guy who's a design student from Sydney. His name's Mitchell Horrocks. Mm. And he also works with what Matt and I describe as those love, lovable pirates of the industry. <laughs> You're cocking your head at me. Bartenders. Do oh, right. Yes. Yeah, bartenders. And um, so he's got a Kickstarter campaign. Mm. And um, I've got to say that we were kind of lucky because I had to really get through the gatekeepers of 3RRR because we don't normally promote mm. Kickstarter campaigns, but I was actually able to convince um, the lovely people, Elizabeth yes. McCarthy for yes. one, thanks Elizabeth, um, of the validity of what's uh, what's happening there. So we've got a Kickstarter campaign and oh, shit, we'll, we'll find out about that a bit later, but uh, what has, Mitchell has done has devised and designed a ridiculously simple way mm. of purifying water for $1.50 per unit. Right. We'll find out about that a little bit later. And mm. then, mm. at the end of the show, last sort of thing, um, you know how you, you sort of talk about, you talk to Thais. I don't know how often you've talked to Thais lately. Thai, thai people. Yeah, people from th- Thailand. Not thai as people. In, not as in the, the, the thing you hang around your neck. No, no, not people. Don't say much to them. I'm, I do swear at them occasionally when yes. I can't get the not right. Yes, that's that, that's true. Mm. But, uh, you know, you talk to Thais, you talk to Chinese, you talk yes. to the Indians, you talk about, you know, you've had, um, you've always had chilies in your continent, yes. haven't you? Always. Correct? Yes. Wrong. And um, what we want to do, do you know, that's good. And what we want to do <laughs> yes. is to talk about um, a little bit about uh, the journey of the chili, mm-hmm. because it uh, didn't start off in Asia, didn't, didn't start off in India, mm-hmm. um, and it is part of what we call the Columbus Exchange, which happened right. around about 1492 when Chrissy Columbus <laughs> hey, he said, "I'm coming in my Santa Maria. I'm going across water. I'm looking for. Actually, he was looking for pepper. Believe it or not, was he? And he yeah. found chili. And he or went, we brought chili. And he went these things. We will call them red peppers. But anyway, we don't want to mm. spoil too much. I've found some saints. We haven't done this for a while. No, they're beauties, <laughs> right? First of all, today's food quote from yes. Dion Lucas. Don't know who you are, Dion, but this is good, mm. and it sort of suits the ethos of the show and why we talk about food. It goes like this." The preparation of good food is merely another expression of art, one of the joys of civilised living. Ponderous. Pause for thought. <laughs> Thank you. No, I like that. I agree. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Come on. Um, so what do we got? Two saints today, for the heck of it. Yes. First one I want to just give to you is uh, Saint Menas of Egypt, and he was the patron of travelling merchants, and this is quite... Mm-hmm. Appropriate for maybe our last conversation we yes. have about the journey of Chile. Chile. And it's also mm. St. Martin's Day, and he's the patron of drunkards. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, St. Martin, I've Finally, again. someone thinks of the drunkards. Oh, shit. Oh, whoopsie. God. Uh, <clears throat> so if you are overindulged today, you have St. Martin looking down upon you. But he's got more than that in his portfolio. Really? Oh, yeah. okay, right. He's a busy saint. So he's yeah. the patron of drunkards. Mm. Don't know why I'm going into an Irish accent there. Uh, harvests. 
Yes. Keep, like, it, yeah. it, it gets better. Horses. <laughs> and the ones who get the people drunk, the innkeepers. Right. On your St. Martin, you're a busy man. That's a, that's a very, it's, he is quite the junior cabinet member there. It's isn't a he? big portfolio, <laughs> but we think that we're expecting big things. It's 1210 here on 3 Triple RFM. How's your Sunday going? Hope it's going good. Uh, we're going to talk to Mitchell Horrocks as soon as we uh, do these sponsorship announcements. Hmm. 1212 here on 3 Triple RFM and using the uh, the mighty power of communications in this country that is now 50th in internet connections, but let's not talk about the war. Yeah. Uh, we're on the telephone to Mitchell Horrocks. A very good afternoon to you, buddy. Good afternoon to you too. How are you going? I'm doing good. What's, uh, what's it like in steak and kidney? It is bloody hot today. Is it? Um, yeah, it's about p- pushing thirty at the moment. I reckon. Ooh. Pretty nice. Yeah. And what are you, you were you were off to some gig or party or something today, aren't you? I'm off to a mate's uh, engagement. engagement party. Yes. Yeah, that's... from high school. So it's kind of the first oh. engagement party for my friend. So it's all it's all started now. Oh, dude. Okay. Well, oh, well, there are these rituals that we all go through in our in our lifetimes, and you're in a you're in a nice neck of your life if you know what i mean to be going that one so that that sounds like a Very good thing true. but uh, yeah. the important thing we wanted to speak to you about is i've sort of set this up and i was um talking about uganda i don't actually if i mentioned uganda but i certainly wanted to talk about a cycle of sickness that happens with um waterborne diseases and uh, the fact with you have an association with africa and a solution. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe we'd first of all um, say thanks for joining us. Secondly, how did you how did you find yourself in Africa? Oh, it's a it's a pretty long story, I suppose, to this point. But the first Reader's Digest, mate. Reader's Digest. <laughs> yep, yep. So the first <laughs> time that I uh, I had the chance to go to Uganda was actually a um, year eleven school trip. Yep. So uh, a school that I went to in Sydney had the opportunity every two years to send a team um, to Uganda to work for an orphanage for a couple of weeks, help them uh, build a teacher's home. Oh, so it's been an uh, ongoing, ongoing association with the country. Yeah, yeah and it started yeah. started with this trip, which was um, just part of like a, a, a trip we could do in, in a holiday period. So me and 10 mates and a, and a school teacher went there. Mm. Um, and I kind of just fell in love with it from um, from that little trip then. Then I went to, uh, once I finished high school, I got accepted into university but deferred that and really wanted to do something else um, and, for a year and found myself volunteering for that same orphanage. And I suppose the important thing for the, the progression of the story is the fact that um, you were interested in design. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when I was going through high school... Woodwork and metalwork and all those sort of DNT subjects were definitely my favourite. I um, yeah, I got accepted into studying um, integrated product design or what it was called back then, which was industrial design mm. um, at the University of Technology Sydney, which has got an amazing workshop. I remember going there to the workshop on their open days and being like, "Oh, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen." This is the, yeah. these are the coolest toys I've ever seen in my yeah, life. Exactly. I can't yeah, wait. Yeah. I've never seen a three D printer before, and that thing can print me whatever I want. Yeah. Yeah, um, I could uh, riff on about 3D printers, but we'd better keep on to the, the yeah, subject. Yeah. Um, so you you got to know the people, and and you were 
kind of different in the way that maybe most Europeans um, insert themselves into the, the people and the culture, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I kind of wanted to... I mean, like, I was, I was a, a kid, basically, when I first volunteered. I was 18, um, and I'd only really known Sydney and our kind of community that we have here, but I was really... I, don't know, I was really interested in learning about African or Ugandan communities. So when I was living there, I didn't. I had all these rules that were placed on me when I was working at the orphanage, like don't leave the compound. Cars. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Don't eat off the side of the road. All this stuff, yeah. which obviously covers them, but I don't think it really gives you the experience that you want to have with going to Africa as an eighteen-year-old to volunteer. So yeah, I just basically took the public transport that the locals did, uh, which brought about a few strange looks every now and then, but I learned the, learned the language and I learned a few little lines so that when I got in these taxis, I could say a few words and it basically meant uh, the colour of my skin does not mean that I can't get in this form of transport, then everybody would laugh. and Yeah, it was good. So I started to eat the food and learn about the language. Yeah, it was great. I loved the place from, um, from that first experience. And I guess one of the things you found out about was the... Uh um, the uh, prevalence of, of waterborne disease, waterborne virus bacteria, which affected the population, which needed to be solved. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like we hear lots of um, you know statistics and stuff like that. Living in the Western world, we hear you know World Vision and all their all their statistics today. But when you actually go to these places, it's it's even worse than you could possibly imagine. Mm. I suppose the first few times when I was volunteering, I wasn't necessarily going to these um, village areas. I was mainly in the city and their surrounding suburbs. Yeah. Um, which kind of gives you like a, a false impression because 87% of Uganda is rural communities. Wow. Um, and, and, and the urban community is actually quite well off. Like apart from them still having to boil their own water, like they, they kind of live uh, quite a similar, you know, life than we, that we do here in Sydney. But once you go into the rural communities, it's just so much more different and then yeah that's how i kind of um yeah want to design something that could change that so the the problem was um and still is um the the water supply is kind of dangerous over there yep. and, and then we think about all the different ways that um well maybe you, over to you rather than me tell the audience because you're the expert what are all the different ways that you can purify water yeah, there's lots of different ways. I mean, like, there's lots of different technologies that are being um, invented at the moment to purify mm. water, but there's basic forms. There's, uh, you know, like uh, sand filtration, there's charcoal filtration, yep. uh, there's UV. Which is um, an interesting technology. You're utilised yeah. a lot by the United States military, I notice. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of different ways. Chlorination. There's, there's, there's chemical intervention. Yep, yep. So... When I was volunteering for these uh, for this orphanage, they would also give us these little tablets that we could put in a, a bottle of water that wasn't clean, and yeah. they told us it would, you know, uh, be clean enough to drink to drink with just one of these tablets. And then there's the the most easy form just, of all, which is boiling the water to uh, yeah, to a certain degree. Ninety two degrees, I think you told me, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 So, so just at, just at like boil 70, the water. 80, yeah, seventy eighty degrees. Nearly all the bacteria is killed. Yep. Um, and then at 80 to 90, uh, all the viruses are killed as well. Bang. And so one of the things that you noticed about Uganda is that they use cooking pots to uh, to cook their meals um, of the evening, correct? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 
and then piggyback on that. What, what was how was that eureka moment? When when did that sort of happen for you? So when I was doing my research months for in preparation for my um, for my project, I was living in these rural villages and kind of watching their cooking process because they cook for hours and hours every day. What's the and, I, um, and what is what was in the pot that they're cooking usually? Uh, it's usually some sort of uh, potato, or they use uh, plantain bananas to yes. make a kind of mash, which becomes their base. So their their meals consist of two parts. They've got the one part, which is either the rice or the potato or these plantain bananas, and then they'll flavour that with a sauce or some sort of soup or beans. So they've always got the base, which will fill you up, yeah. and the sauce, which makes it tasty, basically. Yeah, yeah. Do you get so just out of curiosity? This is something completely yep. out of left field, mate. Uh, chilies? Do they eat chilies over there? Not really. No, not really. They, they okay. don't really grow any chilies. There's yeah, not right. much. If you go towards maybe uh, Tanzania and a bit further south, they do start to use um, yeah some chilies and spices, but it's pretty it's pretty basic stuff in in Uganda. It's like they season things with tomatoes and onions and ah. things like that. So the fact is. There's a pot on. It's on a mm-hmm. rolling boil for quite a while. And um, and you, by using uh, you were able to measure the heat that's coming out there and you piggybacked onto that, I guess we could put, couldn't we? Yeah, yeah. So What's the, the, what was the solution? So basically I've designed, I would, I would call it a, a funnel of sorts. So it's a, um, it's a sheet metal product that sits on top of their food pot. Mm. So... When they're cooking, it's either it's probably for at least two hours every time they're boiling this food. So it's a long time, and I noticed there was a huge amount of steam being produced from this food. Yeah. Now would actually get an older pot and put that upside down on top of the food pot to keep the heat inside, hmm. and obviously cook the food quicker. Yeah. And I measured that pot, and I saw that it was over 200 degrees, and I was like, how can we not only keep that that steam energy inside, but somehow utilise that steam energy to try and boil a pot of water because obviously that steam's going nowhere except being kept inside. What if, for example, that you would cut a hole on that upside-down pot that is sitting on top of it and then use that steam to heat another pot of water? So that's when I was looking at these. Every single time a lady would put this upside-down pot, I, I said, what do you do that for? And they would say, oh, it's just to keep the steam in. And I said, what if we could use that steam to then heat a pot of water. So then I decided to think about how I could produce some sort of funnel or some sort of contraption that would fit all their pots and it could actually sit on top and utilising the steam energy could heat this pot of water. I didn't really think about how quickly it could heat it, but in the two hours that they're cooking, I knew it could possibly get it to at least 80 or 90 degrees. Yep. Um, so when I was in the village, I kind of had this eureka mo- uh, moment, travelled back to the city, went to one of these um, places where they have a sheet metal fabricators, and just by hand we made my first prototype within a few hours, uh, which is pretty simple, using their uh, techniques that they use to attach things together. They don't have any screws or welding. It's actually really ingenious techniques. And then took it back to the village, tested it, and within half an hour, the food water was at 92 degrees using the steam from the food. So 
Yeah, that was a pretty awesome moment. That would have been a great moment. And one of the great things is that this invention sort of doesn't come with an imperial imperative, if you know what I mean. It's it's not as if, you know, a United Nations person is driving in in a land cruiser saying that, you know, thou shalt do this because we know better and we're telling you so. It's about inclusiveness and people can take ownership of the idea and construction themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the it was designed with the idea that I wanted these people to be part of the process yes. of the creation of this product. Yeah. So not only were they a process of the design, so I really wanted them to be included in the design process so that I didn't make a mistake. If they were looking <laughs> at the design process the whole way through yeah. and I, I kept asking them questions, we kept building on that. It was yeah. a really good relationship to have with them. Like and one, one really of them said to you, Mitchell, um, mate, maybe they didn't say mate because they're Ugandans, but they said, uh, Mitchell, maybe we could have handles on it would be kind of yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, yeah. We, when we first tested the prototype, I saw them like grabbing pit, bits of paper between their <laughs> yes. hands and then trying to grab it because it was pretty hot. And they were like, yeah, yeah I think a, a yeah. handles could be beneficial. I'm like, yeah, true. Even yeah. though their hands are like leather, like if you can withstand the temperatures that they withstand picking up these pots they're pretty good but yeah handles was just an easy addition well look um i think it's a great idea and just to reiterate folks if you're trying to get an idea head around what this thing looks like it's sort of like a, a collar almost that that fits around the pot and it is tin snip so that it's gradually it has these sloping sides inside so that a pot can just snugly fit in, and it's sort of a bit universal, so many sort of sized pots can fit in, which allows... It's like a bain-marie, in a way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Or a double, yeah. or a steamer sort of thing. Anyway, yeah, yeah. it's... Um, you've got a Kickstarter campaign, and um, as I said, we're pretty lucky to be able to promote this on the air because we don't normally do Kickstarter campaigns, but it's a Kickstarter campaign with a little bit more because... There's going to be an association with the Lincoln Hotel um, mm -hmm. that's coming up soon. I've lost the bloody date. November the 26th, which is yep. Sunday fortnight. What's going yep. on? So down in Sydney, we had a, uh, an event on the 27th of August. It was mm. called Drinks Uganda. It was basically on a Sunday. We went to a uh, bar called Ramblin' Rascal Tavern, and we had five pop-ups from Sydney's Best Bars. Uh, all the all the booze was donated. All the time on the bar uh, was donated. So there was no overheads. We managed to raise twelve thousand dollars in six hours. Yeah, which is awesome. And that's going to happen, so, happen here because oh, it also should yeah. be mentioned, Mitchell. You're part of the pirate crew of uh, bartenders, and uh, we've got bar crews that are coming in. We, yeah, uh, I exactly. should say, the Lincoln has bar crews coming in from the Beaufort yeah. Union Electric, Jungle Boy, and Bad Frankies. And the idea is that each crew. We'll get 45 minutes to make a drink of their choice. Um, and then all the proceeds on that day um, from the bar. Is that more? Many drinks. As proceeds will be going straight to make a difference. So I think it's um, it's just a, a really, really great idea. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a fun day. So we've got about uh, 25000 sorry, raised um, mm. on the page and also including the money we raised in Sydney. So yeah, we're trying to we're trying to hit the 50k. So if we can get 20,000 on the uh, Melbourne event, I think that would be a huge success. So yeah, it's going for nine hours from three till 12. Yeah. And um, yeah, Black Pearl's also in uh, on the bar. So yeah, you know the drinks will be good. Oh, Black Pearl, yeah, that sort of uh, my page must have run out. All right, Matt's um, uh, Matt's my producer, and he's the one who must be obeyed. And he's saying, listen, mate, you're going over time, and it's kind of atrocious. <laughs> um, have fun at your engagement. 
Um, just Thanks, to mate. those uh, details, it is going to be the Lincoln Hotel. It is on the 26th. Um, if we want to look up uh, what you're doing for you, get oh, we'll put a link. Does that sound good? Yep. And maybe just yep, quickly mention good. it. How do we how do we find it if we want to find out? Uh, so we've got a start some good page. So it's startsomegood.com. Startsomegood.com. Clean water for Uganda, and all those have dashes in between, and the four is just a four with the letter. Bloody hell. That's our donation page. It's got a lot of information on that. We've got a video on there as well, which we did, which explains everything quite a succinct way. Good on you, mate. Well, look, have fun. Uh, got double thumbs up from Matt. Yes? Yes. Awesome. Oh, he doesn't want to speak to me because he just wants to move on. Have fun at your engagement. <laughs> Enjoy that. Congratulations on that eureka moment. Matt's got some good tunes. Well, hopefully... Well, we'll soon find out. So you can be the judge of that. You can be the judge of that here on 3 Triple R. Oh, my God, we have gone over. I'm in trouble, but we had to get that out, I think. Mm. It's good stuff. Yeah, of course I'm ready, Matt. Never in doubt. Never Never in in doubt doubt at all. Ladies and gentlemen, it's 12.33. Just clicked over. And, wow, I mean, uh, we've got one of the, um, well, the superstars in here today and it's a little bit exciting um ashley's just looking around him which was very very <laughs> lovely of you to be doing that ashley palmer watts uh right hand man of heston blumenthal the executive chef of dinner by heston here as we say on the south bank of the yarra and um also way back in old blighty bloody hell welcome to you morning how, how are you i'm very well thanks how are you Better for seeing you. I mean, um, this is kind of exciting. And the wonderful thing is that you've put uh, uh, a beautiful drink in my hand. So um, you don't come much more welcome than that to the show. <laughs> but so you can't, can't, can't go wrong. Can you've you ticked all the boxes already, Ash. So this is awesome. What's it's going on? 12, you know. Yeah, it's the sun's fine. way over the yard, um, you know. And uh, oh, there's something to be said about the Levenses anyway when it's, you know, when, exactly. when you can get away with it. Sunshine in, it's half past 12. Gin and tonic. Bloody hell, gin and tonic. Now, um, you're no stranger to this fair town. In fact, um, I noticed that uh, this is, I think, your 36th visit here. Yep. Frequent flyer point for yeah. Manza. It's, uh, yeah. Oh, I've, I've been a few Matt's times. Matt's jealous. Yeah. I'm certainly making up for not coming over here in my early years, that's for sure. You, you sort of get used to sort of being imprisoned in this um, in this cylinder in, in the sky because it's a bit of... Do you, do you break up the trip when you come here? That's probably a good thing to ask. Oh, I literally get off in Dubai or Singapore and then, you know, transit round and then straight back on the aeroplane. But Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, I, I do quite, do I a do. round of the duty-free. Well, no, do you know what? I'm really boring. I just go to the lounge, sit down, and then straight back on the plane again. Yeah, right. So. Well, you, you sound like maybe you're a bit jaded traveller. Oh, yes, I've done <laughs> no, all that. No, no, no. I won't be buying those sunglasses. <laughs> no more Apple products. No, no more Apple products. You know. <laughs> no special things like that. Now... Um, let's just um, go to the beginning. You're from Dorset. Yeah, in the south of England. What's Dorset like? Um, it's it's kind of like, I guess it's the un, the unsung hero of the West Country, really. I think you've got Cornwall yes. and Devon, yes. and then you've got Dorset and Somerset, which are kind of, they're not like Devon and Cornwall. They don't have the surf beaches. It's more natural. <laughs> surf beaches. Um, <laughs> well, actually, yeah, That's I can't believe you just that over here. No, no, no. We were, we were just talking about that the other week about um, Cornwall and surfing, so long as you've got a dry suit or something like that and an <laughs> incredibly a good constitution. But being second fiddle in that sort of thing would be kind of a good thing because you wouldn't have the crush of tourism. Yeah. and wouldn't be like the lakes 
district where I imagine at times you wouldn't be able to move there because yeah, of the- I mean we we get a lot of walkers and artists and yeah. all that kind of stuff, but it's very quiet and relaxed and it's lovely. Good, good place to grow up. Yeah, loved it. Mum and dad, they cook. Um, no, my mum was an all right cook. She burned yeah. a lot of things. Oh um, bless! But it was very much a, a, a kind of. I mean, we remember when the first supermarket came to the local town. Really? You know, and I'm I'm only 39, so it's not that long ago. But it was, you know, my my grandfather and uh, he had a couple of gardens and and an allotment. So it was just Mm. normal that we ate nice food, but it wasn't gastronomic in any shape or form. So the the produce was good. Uh, The the interpretation left a little bit of to be desired, shall we say. What brought you into such an exalted area of cooking because we were describing this i mean you are really the top of the one percent of people uh, professionally cooking in the world today well what happened well i guess you know I, it's like i say to my guys now and and anyone like i'm going to explain to you that yeah, i think that the restaurants and and anything that is brilliant mm. um or at that very top end it's all about people and I was lucky enough to meet a guy in my village when I was 13, and I asked him for a job um, yeah. of washing up dishes. And he was from Canada. He met this English lady. They lived in Canada for 10 years, opened uh, this small restaurant in, in my village. And it was, you know, sort of deemed the posh restaurant. It was expensive. It was like £20 for three they, courses or something. they have a sole with a beurre on it, perhaps? No, it was no. very it, it was very sort of what you would call, um, what would you call it? It was like very sort of new American. It was slightly Asian influence. American Nouveau. Yeah, exactly. Right. And anything really. What's went, American Nouveau? Well, back then it was... It was Charlie Trotter, Jeremiah yeah, Tower, Alice right. Waters. Yes. You know, so I kind of grew up reading those books um, yeah. as opposed to just the English ones. Charlie was pretty refined, wasn't he? Charlie was amazing. And funny enough, I actually spent a month in that kitchen. Did you? Yeah, in Chicago. And uh, did, he, did he laugh? Uh, he, he, he was... A great man, but some say lacking a sense of humour. Very intense. Yeah. Um, but Anthony the, Bourdain said he needed to get laid. You could be right. You could be right. But but there was, you know, I I went there. It was in my transition from sort of chef to party level up Mm. to sous chef at the Fat Duck. And and Heston said, you know, I'd love you to go away somewhere. Hang about, hang about. How did you get into from doing the American Nouveau to Heston? Well, so I used to work in the restaurant in the the afternoons in Dorset. Yes. And then I used to be a part-time watercress farmer as well on an organic watercress farm. As you do. In the next valley. Oh, yeah. You're the first one I've ever met. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, never met another one no. so i've um, oh, yeah, a bit of watercress yeah so so, yeah. so i used to do watercress in the mornings yes and then restaurant in the afternoon and then i went with the guy i used to work with at the watercress farm and a couple of his family to the fat duck <gasps> for my birthday oh my god and ever since that point then i just knew i had to go and work there um it wasn't the most perfect thing in the world it's nothing like the fat duck is now yes but um, it was pretty special. It was pretty special, and I went and worked there for a couple of weeks in my holiday. And uh, it didn't. Heston didn't really have that pull back then, so no one really went to his place. And it wasn't free. brand Heston at that no, stage, it was as the, there is now. The kitchen was full of bums and criminals. It was that kind of place. There really? was no, yeah, there was no. He couldn't get like amazing stuff. And right. He just had to take what he could. Yeah. And he opened this little brasserie, I mean, wow. steak and chips. Green salad, uh, lemon tart, you know, risotto, and yeah. and it was it, it just snowballed from there really. So you've Im- I hate using this word. I'm using the J word, Matt. You've embarked on that journey with him in a way. You've been sort of step by step with him. Yep. 
You've grown together. Yep. Yeah, I've been. I was there since the since the very first sort of TV filming, um, yeah. right back in the day in '99, and uh, you know, it's it's been an incredible journey. It just it never stood still, and it still doesn't. I no, mean, it doesn't. It's pretty mental. We got we probably about 400, 420 people that work for us now. Stop it. Yeah. For is that just in UK or, or uh, around got, the world? We've got about ninety five in Melbourne. Yeah, we've got one hundred and ten in uh, London, and then we, of course we've got the Fat Duck, the Hindshead, the Crown, and a restaurant at the airport. And one of the things that you do have is it's sort of like it's almost the military industrial complex in that you have R and D like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, and you were able to invest in this research and development. I'm wondering just how did that sort of start this whole thing of all right, let's look at making the perfect... Well, you know, there was the thing of making the perfect fish and chips, the perfect yep. hamburger, and how do we get the stretchiest cheese? And to, yeah, How so, did that come about? And what were the... Any sort of moments you remember that are really important? Yeah, so, I mean, it, as the restaurant grew and mm. got busier and busier and the interest was just insane, you became so caught up in delivery yeah. and the day-to-day, you know, we need this many and mm. it's got to be ready and we've got to be ready for 12 o'clock and blah, 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 that that really isn't a great environment for creativity. It does. No. There is certainly some aspect of it that does work. Yes. But you, you don't – you find yourself prioritizing that because it's immediate and it's now and you've got a deadline. And what time is it now? And, you and know, we've the, got and this many people coming are in. Are the diners in yet? Maria. Yeah, exactly. And, and so to then separate out and be able to separate out financially to say, well, actually, we need to pull ourselves out of this and create a space where we can just do stuff – get it wrong, mess it up, blow things up, hurt mm. ourselves sometimes and you know <laughs> yes. and, and you can come out with some great things and I think it's 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 not an either or, you need a balance of both. Yes. And so now, especially for dinner, um, I've got a very small team of four people with the work between the two restaurants. Yeah. That it's it's kind of like operational but it's also the creative side, development side as well. And I think marrying them together is my personal preference. Yes. Um, if you keep them very, very separate, no, you end up with two camps and yeah. what are you giving me this for? This doesn't work. Yeah. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It, doesn't. So, it wasn't like that when I gave it to you. No, 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 yeah. So you get that interaction and, and the way that that fits together is, is really important. And it also balances out the, the life of a chef because uh, – a chef, a cook, in the fact that – it's hard bloody work. I mean, you know, doing services and working, getting your mise en place done and working towards service and then grinding through a service is great. And by doing this, you're able to give not only interest but also balance to people, and that's got to be kind of good. Exactly. I mean, a lot of chefs get to 30, 35 and, and, and just go, do you know what? Sorry, excuse me. I'm going to find something else to do. Yes, that's a better way of putting it. I've got a family now and I've got to do this. So we're very, very aware of this and, and try and create opportunities within our little group and different restaurants to, to, to enable people to grow within and, mm. and still have a great balance, you know. And you set up Dinner by Heston um, over here in Melbourne. That must have been a, a wonderful challenge to be. Yeah. Do you remember the, when you were told you were, guess what, sunshine, pack your bags, you're going to Australia? Well, I remember it, I remember it came in and it was like, well, we've got this opportunity of opening dinner in Australia. I'm thinking, 
that is a long way away that for the so second f- one. Yeah. You know, like why we've got three restaurants in Bray that are like 150 yards apart. Yes, and sometimes you couldn't think, we have done Calais or something yeah, like that? This yeah. is quite difficult, and yes. it is. But Hello. actually, you know, well, let's go and have a look. And I came over, and I'd been to Sydney about 10 years before, mm. but that was literally for four or five days. I didn't see outside of Rockpool. Oh, you, were, you were hanging out with Neil, yeah, Neil Perry. Yeah, we were doing a starlight dinner down there. And, oh, um, yeah, okay. Flew yeah. in, worked like crazy, flew out again, and, um, you know, just had the, the onslaught of jet lag and work oh. of four days in Australia, yeah. which was horrendous. No, no time, no time to acclimatize or no, anything. No, not really. No, no lovely trips on uh, Sydney Harbour and we're going to nope. take you to Ronga Park soon. I didn't even see a beach. No. You know, no <laughs> Bondi. Beach. I heard about Bondi, but no. Yep, so that was the first time. So that was the first time. And then I came over, just jumped on the plane, came over, met with the guys here in Melbourne and had a look at the space that it was basically a terrace and, and, and a glass box of a restaurant. <laughs> and uh, they said, well, you know, what we'd look to do is like build a restaurant here. And I'm like, wow, you sure it's going to fit? You guys are dreaming. Because pretty big here. Yeah. Um, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we definitely will fit. And then we just started and, I was, and just eating out in Melbourne was just brilliant. Like, and Melbourne is amazing. It's my second home, really, to be honest. Um, and, uh, yeah, so... Pretty, pretty big food culture here. Massive. Yeah. You know, it's there's always something to go and try. And mm. I love going back to the restaurants that I really like going to, obviously. And mm. it's, um, there's some, got some really great friends here and in the industry and outside. So, uh, yeah, love it. And you have done... Dinner by Heston, and Dinner by Heston is, uh, by all accounts, a, well, it's a fabulous experience. Um, but one of the things you've done is you've, um, as well as sort of bringing techniques and expertise over to here to show us what to do, you've also taken a few things back, and one of those ones was uh, was pumpkin. Yeah, pumpkin's gone back. Um, we, we sort Cause of English don't eat pumpkin, do they? Not, not they feed, really. Feed it to the cows. Yeah, <laughs> the it, cows can have it. We kind of make soup, you know, and and, yeah. and we we hollow them out for Halloween. So it's yeah, um, yeah we God, kind do of you do that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, anyway. yeah, it's anyway. the biggest sale of pumpkin, I guess, in the UK. Really, but um, but yeah, no, we've 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 sort of taken that inspiration back, and you know, we've we've taken dishes back as well, and just thought, you know what, actually. It's nice things going backwards and forwards. So for Australia Day, we we do the lamington cake over there and cherry ripe and these sort of things that are going to strike cherry ripe. Yeah, so we 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 kind of created a dessert based from the cherry ripe bar. And what was the interest of the the cherry ripe? Um, it's it's very different than anything we got in the UK as as a chocolate bar. Really? Um, yeah. And Who do you think someone would have come out cherry coconut dark chocolate enrobed? Yeah, but you kind of you Bob's kind of break uncle. it open and you think, oh, this is going to taste terrible. Yeah, and then you eat it and you're like, actually, that's pretty good. Yeah, that kind of works. And uh, well, that's that's definitely right. And um, we were working with uh, Barbara Santich, a food historian from Adelaide. Yes, fabulous. And I woman. said, look, what in terms of dessert, you know, what is the thing other than Lamington, obviously? Mm. Um, and what, the pav. What should we look into? And she said, well, definitely the Cherry Ripe Bar because you know it was invented here in Melbourne. And, Just a uh, couple of suburbs away in Fitzroy. Yeah, and uh, so we we started looking into it and and whatnot, and uh, and then we discovered that the name Cherry Ripe came from a piece of poetry written by a, an English chap called uh, Robert Herrick in I think it was fifteen seventy one. And then something put to music or something. Yeah, and then about seventy years later, there's a composer that wrote a piece of music to then turn it into a piece of music. Bit of an interesting evolution, isn't it? Really cool. I mean, th- you can't talk to these people anymore to make sure. In fact, you can only go on what you read. And um, well, that's what they that's what they say about history. But um, 
We've got a beautiful drink in front of us, and I want to talk to you yep. a little bit about that, which we will. Um, but one of the things I just wanted to ask was the fact that one of the reasons that you guys came in here to this box in the south bank of the Yarra um, was the very, very fact that uh, Bray was undergoing a complete and utter restoration of its kitchen. Yes, yes. we. Uh, what was it like to return to that? Well, it was, was amazing. We had a small... Bigger, better, faster, stronger? Yeah, I mean, the kitchen was quarter the size of your studio here. Um, and it was all Whoa. over the place. It was, yeah, it was small, yeah. tiny. Yeah. So we had to knock the whole back of the building down and build this kind of eco kitchen. And um, define we, eco kitchen. Well, it's kind of made out of sustainable woods and yeah. living roof yeah. on top. And in the conservation area where the fat duck is, it had to be, you know, it had to fit in. Yeah, yeah, um, got it. But then, yeah, I mean, it was. If you imagine you've got an incredible team of people, mm. you can't just get rid of them and ask them to come back in seven and a half, eight months. You have to do something no, with them. Do something, yeah. And you can't. And you don't want to lose them. With all the will a, in the world, it costs a lot of money to and, employ and that many people. And this is one of the most precious things you have with something like this is your intellectual property and your human resource. Yeah. So, yeah, you can't just cast that away. And Exactly. And, you know, so we always needed somewhere to go and operate and yes, take the facts up to. So very, very clever. We started building dinner and then decided that if we put a small restaurant room inside what would become dinner the kitchens are for dinner yes then we could go over and open fat duck first and then move them back when it was done and then open dinner boom and so it must have been incredible because you would have literally returned back to the uk to england and then just emerged in this new space it must have been what was what was that like? Oh, it was, yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I was in the UK, but when we were almost finished, uh, I came over for the last day because the last day in Melbourne was our 20th anniversary of oh, the Fat Duck. Wow. So um, we had to stay open a little bit later so we could do that 20th anniversary lunch. And then literally, I went back to the UK. They followed about two weeks later, and I went back to Melbourne to open dinner whilst they were opening Fat Duck. God, I would so have it was like this have... military operation almost of, of restaurants. Well, we've heard that. I mean, you know, we do call talk, still talk about the brigade system, so so much of it is about the military operations. Um, have you got a favourite sort of um, gadget or apparatus of this new kitchen that you've got in? I suppose you've seen most of them, like you know, your rotovacs and your separators and yeah i mean yeah. we've got i mean it's it's just a normal kitchen at yeah. the end of the day yeah. i mean it's lovely it's induction or gas uh induction there you go yeah not, lots not quite of normal yeah. induction and charcoal uh -oh. so the two the two differences really well look we've got a beautiful glass of gin in front of us we're going to talk a little bit about that ashley palmer watts is our guest here on eat it on three triple r hit it man yeah, damn straight. Who was uh, that guy? I don't know. I don't Strange know. guy on the microphone. Strange guy. But the <laughs> most important thing is we've got Ashley Palmer Watts, uh, the executive chef of Dinner by Heston, here and straddling the grove. <laughs> He's got really long legs. Um, and um, we've got a really lovely drink in here. And I've just got the pop cover a little bit wet. <laughs> um, this is a, a gin that you were a part in making, uh, selecting botanicals in Western Australia. Yeah? That's right, yeah. We, we were down in Gourmet Escape last year in Margaret River and mm. we got to go to Lime Burners down there and uh, create a gin with a guy that we collaborate with for our bar here in Melbourne yes. at, at dinner. And um, we started to blend gin and make a gin for that, that event. Mm -hmm. And, of course, now we, can, we serve this in our restaurant and bar and uh, it's going to be the gin again this year. But we really wanted to incorporate what we took from the journey from Perth to 
Margaret River. So we blended our gin with um, lemon myrtle, which, I mean, we love as, a, as an ingredient in the kitchen anyway. This is the lovely toppy citrus note that you yeah. wanted to sort of yeah. have this whole. Is there juniper in it? Um, there is. It's it's a base. It's a base so it's a, spirit. It's a, it's a, so it's, a, it's sort of based on a London dry gin. Yeah. So it's a base spirit, but grape based. Yes. Uh, rather than grain. And what does that do by having it as a um, grape based spirit? Well, they say that it's 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 much cleaner. It's much more simple, and it kind of will will take on the other sort of aromats in a much more smooth, accepting way, and is a lot creamier on the finish than yeah. than a grain one can so be quite like, quite harsh. So we're talking about mouthfeel. Is, is yeah. it's a little bit easier? Exactly, and we wanted something that was going to be kind of in easy drinking on the beach. Slice of lemon, uh, nice bit of tonic. What music's playing? Well, it could be anything, really, could be couldn't anything. it? could Whatever be anything, to be honest, when the wow. sun's shining down here. Ah, uh, yeah, sounds good. So, um, okay, so we start off, we've got... Um, so, yeah, so if I put myrtle. it in, in in strength terms out of 10, if you say, well, lemon myrtle's probably about 7 out of 10, mm. and then a strength of 4 out of 10 for sandalwood, which we took quite a lot of... Sandalwood? Yeah, sandalwood. So that's the base now. Yeah, and then you've got uh, baronia, which is your flowering plant that is very sort of fragrant and used and very western australian very western australian interesting molecule though in the baronia and the fact that you know if you smell baronia yeah the first impression is you're using out of 10 right yeah. is sort of let's say nine out of 10 yeah next time you smell it it goes down to seven yeah and then the next time you say it's like five it's like this it's like this ship receding onto the horizon so yeah, yeah. that first thing is really really important yeah. but it adds a beautiful well, aromatic well, floral thought, note yeah i thought it was kind of like floral but also a little bit coastal you know, yeah, it's a little yeah. bit saline and a little bit yeah. what I would consider Western Australia to smell like. You know, when you're yeah. by the sea and it's a little bit cold. I'll buy that. Um, and then two out of ten for eucalyptus. We didn't want that to be too powerful, but obviously it's massively what important. What sort of eucalyptus did you use? Just uh, dried eucalyptus, and then you just kind of crush them a little bit. You don't yeah. want to damage them too much. And then the last little bit on there, one out of ten, was Tasmanian mountain pepper. One out of ten, very clever. <laughs> yes. I tasted a pepperberry this week. It's, and, like, uh, it's like the Tasmanian devil of spices. Yeah, and it just creeps up on you and keeps going and keeps going. But, um, Pers- but yeah. Persistent and growing. But it, it adds just that little bit of... A lovely mm, little finishing note yeah. to the thing. Just a lovely little bit of warm spice. Just but, a little um, bit of scrape. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, we, we love it. And, and, and that was really our take on what Australia really tasted like to us mm. at that moment, travelling down to Perth. And the thing is that we can, obviously, it's not going to be available in bottle shops. We're not going to see it at Dan Murphy's. But no. the good news is that if you were one of the lucky people to go down to Dinner by Heston, yep. and you can just go to the bar too you can, and just you have can a drink. just pop in and have, all our cocktails are historically inspired, really? Australian and British. Because really? um, really it's about fun. the narrative, isn't it? Exactly. And, and that's... It's all about the balance in these drinks. And you can sit there at the bar, look over the city skyline and watch the world go by, you know, come in for a couple of drinks if you fancy. Could be worse things to do. There, there are worse things to do. Could be worse things. Now, yeah. how long are you here in Australia for? So I'm so here until will... week Friday. Oh, so you're here for a while, so you can yeah. have a jet lag and everything. <laughs> Hopefully I'll be over it yeah, quite soon. That would be nice. Who knows, maybe get down here, get to Bondi Beach before you know it. Exactly. And, yeah, and do all that sort of stuff. Now, tell me. As a chef who works insane hours and just has, you know, this commitment to the cause, because this is really, you know, you've signed up, you've drunk the Kool-Aid, you're there, man. Yeah. But there must be times when you just have, you know, just time to yourself and family. Yep. Do you cook at home? I do, what yeah. Do you, what, what, are the, what, what are your go-to dishes when, you um, know, the busy chef who 
spends his whole time, life and ethos creating dishes, what do you do to relax in the kitchen? Do you know what? I cook outside a lot. Uh, I mean, that might be hard to understand from, from an Australian point of view, being no. cooking in Britain for maybe eight months of the year is freezing cold. Yeah, but we, we have things that we, they're called coats, aren't yeah. they? And we can warm. It's all right. And you are usually cooking you on, have those, on yeah. a heat source. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I do a lot of cooking outside. I have a big green egg and a couple of different grills. Oh, a green egg. Can you yeah. describe what a green egg is for so people? It's like a, it's like a ceramic. Ceramic weaver. Egg shaped. Yeah. Yeah. Control the airflow top and bottom. You can cook in it for 15 hours or you can grill, you know, steaks mm. as hot as you like, really. Um, so I, I, I like that kind of thing. I try not to spend too long on it because I've got two kids, uh, yeah. uh, seven and six. So, um, you know, there's there's other things that I need to do as, as a dad, mm. really. Another one, breakfast. Just a sec, man. Breakfast, important thing. Do you ever have mm. – okay, there's two sort of breakfasts you can have. One is sort of the one when you're on – this may not even – be appropriate to when you're on holidays yeah suddenly breakfast makes sense and you can linger over so breakfast when you're on holidays and breakfast for just to get yourself going day to day i don't really eat breakfast i don't eat until about 10 o'clock in the morning i never feel i'm not i'm not one of those people that has to eat really early in the morning so but um whilst i'm in australia i do have breakfast nice bit of Vegemite, crumpets, butter. <laughs> Can't go wrong. Oh, well, you know, we've got the Marmite experience, <laughs> so it's not like it's completely fine. It's not like trying to sell it to an American that will look hurt. We yeah. need to, before we do go, we have to acknowledge someone who has moved on. Yeah, Antonio Carluccio. He's, uh, yeah, very sad day. I, I actually arrived in Australia and literally I turned my phone on and I saw it on social media and I was just like, wow, that's... That's pretty sad, actually. That sucks. But he was here with us in Margaret River two years ago. Yeah. And um, we, we a really funny story. We were doing a pub quiz mm. in this village hall in Margaret River. There were two teams. There was the um, the Australian team and the rest of the world team. I got uh, imported into the Australian team, which was quite an <laughs> hey! honour. Um, yeah. And we had this pub quiz that was quite uh, – there was a lot of banter going on, and it was pretty rude, I suppose. And uh, Antonio was asked the question, how many uh, books have you written? Yeah, and uh, there was this massive discrepancy, and he got pretty uppity about it because he was adamant that it was twenty-eight, but they were like, "No, it's thirty-two," and he, you know that's the impact he's had on on food around the world. He he, we don't know if it's actually twenty-eight or thirty-two, but he's mm. written so many books on food that you can't actually count them anymore. He's one know? of those things, you know. We use that great term, Godfather. Yeah, he's he, the godfather of Italian food. He was amazing. Yeah. Such a lovely, lovely guy. So, uh, yeah, he'll be sorely missed. Yeah, God bless you. And he also told the dirtiest jokes you've ever seen. <laughs> and I used to, and he used to love smoking Marlboro Reds. Twelve fifty nine. Just a couple of seconds left. Ashley, really, really lovely to meet you. Thank you for spending time with us. Thanks very uh, much. Have fun while you are here. And um, yeah, all, more. More success to you in great research and, and being part of the, the Blumenthal crew. <laughs> Thanks very much. Matt, we've got Sunday lunch coming on. We do. They're coming up next and, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. Not sure who's on next week. We'll find never, out. never did the chili rave. We might do that next week because yeah. this was, we couldn't leave it. All right. We'll see you later. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.